Welcome to the Beyond Conflict podcast, where we talk about mental resilience in times of crisis. Beyond Conflict is the mental health charity for people in conflict zones. I'm your host, Yang Mei Ui. In this episode of the Beyond Conflict podcast, my guest is Professor Martin Parsons, co-founder of Beyond Conflict. Martin is also the former director of the Research Centre for Evacuee and War Child Studies at the University of Reading, where he is Honorary Life Fellow. He is one of the world pioneers in the study of the impact of war on children. He's the author of I'll Take That One Too, Waiting to Go Home, and War Child, Children in Conflict. So it is my great honour to record this podcast with Martin and share with you a glimpse into Martin's lifetime of work with children of conflict and how his expertise has informed the work of Beyond Conflict in supporting people affected by conflict around the world. Martin Parsons, welcome to the Beyond Conflict podcast. Thank you. Now, you are co-founder of Beyond Conflict alongside Edna Fernandez. Could you tell our listeners about the work of Beyond Conflict? Um, well, basically, Beyond Conflict is a mental health charity. It's probably one, the only one of its kind um, working specifically in that field. So it, it's humanitarian in the same sense as all the other charities working in this field. But the fact that we're concentrating on the mental health aspect is a first. So we are looking uh, to deal with the mental health problems that arise from living in a conflict zone um, and the long-term effects that that creates over time. Uh, for instance, we, we, we know from research that war-related trauma in, in children in particular um, actually transcends three generations. So what we're doing is not for the present, it's also providing help and support in the future. And what, unlike some chari other charities, what we're also doing is we're using the people on the ground. You know, we're, we're not coming in with a, uh, with a formula that's going to work from this country. We're working with people on the ground and saying to them, we'll provide you with the support, we'll give you the background, we'll give you access to expertise if you need it uh, but uh, at the end of it, it, it it's it's yours to, to run with and um, we get reports back from people who are working in that situation and we can use those reports to actually gauge not only how successful it is but also where we need to provide remedial help. Great, thank you. Now, you are an expert in child war evacuees, and I'd like to come to look into your work specifically in that area in a, in, in a little bit. But I'd like to sort of um, ask you initially um, how you got involved in Beyond Conflict and how that background in war evacuation um, has has given you an insight uh, to 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 help steer the, the, the direction of Beyond Conflict? Well, the honest answer to the first part of that question is I had my arm twisted. Uh, I mean, basically I was doing, I was invited to do a, a Michael Parkinson type of um, scenario at Cumberland Lodge for the Friends of Cumberland Lodge uh, with Ed Newell, who's the chairman now of Beyond Conflict. And Edna Fernandez was sitting in the audience and we'd both been invited to the post-event dinner. And at that point, she said um, she was looking to start up this charity um, and would I be interested in helping and doing, you know, uh, helping her out. So we had a few meetings at Paddington Station I seem to remember the coffee shop and gradually it evolved over that time. Um, as regards my own work, one of the reasons why I think Edna was interested in asking me was I, I'd actually done about um, almost 35, 40 years of research uh, into the effects of war on children 
in World War II across the board, across Europe, not just Britain, but across Europe. And that has enabled me to actually uh, have a wealth of material over time. So that was not research just about the evacuation in 39, 40 and 44. It's that evacuation and the effects it had afterwards. So some of the people I was interviewing within the countries I was working, you know, are now in their 70s and 80s. Uh, in some cases, actually, some of them are older. Um, and they can reflect on the experience and the effect it's had on them personally. And so what I've been able to do is collate my research with the findings that they now have on a personal level. And we can look at the two. So I can actually be quite authoritative on saying this happened because, or if you don't do this, this will happen. Uh, because I have so much material to back it up. So this experience with um, interviewing people who've actually lived through war trauma during the Second World War um, has informed your um, ability to um, engage in beyond conflict in a in a deep sort of historical way by by you've got the evidence from actual. Uh, documented cases, and you bring that to uh, Beyond Conflict to help uh, form policy, strategy, and the work of Beyond Conflict. Yes, that's right. I mean, because some of the things that perhaps are discussed at various levels, uh, I can actually quite honestly say, well, actually, I don't think that's going to work because I, you know, I've experienced that in the past or I've tried that in the past uh, and it didn't. Conversely, I can say, well, that's a really good idea uh, because it does work. Or if you tweak it a little, you know, looking at the mistakes I made, uh, if you if you tweak it slightly, uh, you'll get a better result or you'll you'll actually get a, a more in-depth investigation that you might originally have uh, have acquired. Um, so basically what I can give to Beyond Conflict is my experience through the mistakes I've made so that the mistakes are not made again. Because um, it needs to be remembered that when I came into this, um, back in the early 80s, um, I was one of the few people working specifically with children in war zones uh, because they had been forgotten about. I mean, a very good friend of mine, Peter Heindel, who I do a lot of work with, I mean, he actually refers to that uh, generation of war children as the invisible generation, uh, because nobody took any notice of them. Uh, you know, you'll see lots and lots of war photographs and there were children within those photographs, but the emphasis on anybody analyzing those pictures in the media or on the old film footage or anything else is not on the children. It's on what's going on around them. And of course, these children went through amazingly difficult, traumatic experiences, which I could draw upon um, to inform beyond conflict, because the children now are going through exactly the same. OK, media might have changed, weaponry might have changed, and, and things have evolved. But, but fundamentally, the effect on the children and on their families hasn't changed at all. So through the work of Beyond Conflict, hopefully they'll become more and more visible um, yes. and actually have beyond, uh, actually more than, of course, be, being visible, but actually having that trauma um, treated, supported, um, helped that in the way that the um, war children of the past um, uh, were, were not able to access that kind of support. That's exactly right, because some of the people I interviewed who were war children in the 30s, sorry, the 40s, if you like, for the Second World War, had no help whatsoever. You know, when they came back from their evacuation schemes, wherever it happened to be, uh, they were just left to go back to their families, left to their own devices. And that was not only, that was pretty traumatic for the people who evacuated within the UK. It was even more difficult for those people who had been evacuated to um, our 
then our colonies overseas. You know, calendar, uh, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, via South Africa into Rhodesia. Uh, some of those children, you know, were, were taken to a totally, totally different culture. Thousands That's really of miles interesting away. for me to hear because in my mind, because I, as a layperson, I don't know very much about it. All I know is things that you hear uh, in the news and history lessons touched upon very, very lightly or maybe in dramas and TV programmes. And um, I think of certainly UK British children being evacuated. Oh, they go off and they they go off to some nice farm in, in Yorkshire um, away from London. But I was not aware of the evacuation overseas. Um, so could you um, perhaps just talk us through, kind of give us the, the child's I view based on your uh, interviews with with these people, um, because um, to, so that we can sort of get inside the 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 the, the skin of, of what it was, what it might have been, what it would have been like um, to have experienced this in that context. Okay. Well, let's take an imaginary a child from the East End of London. Now, a lot of those children would have never had the need to leave the street that they lived in. There was a corner shop. The church was either in this, uh, was there quite close. The school they went to was either in the same street or just around the corner. So their, their whole experience of life was centered on a very, very closed insular environment. Um, they not only had their parents, but some of their extended family lived in the same street. And they had lots of what we would call quasi aunts and uncles. You know, they couldn't call them by their first name, so they called them uncle and aunt. And that's what they grew up in. Now, when war was declared and they decided that they would send these children away, they are now being taken out of that environment. Now, what happened was that parents were informed that their children could be evacuated. It wasn't compulsory. A lot of people think it was, but it wasn't compulsory. Um, but there was a tremendous amount of peer group pressure. You know, why are you not sending your kid away because we are? Or the child comes home from school and says, Jane's being evacuated, why aren't I? That type of thing. So then you get the administrative side kick in. Parents are sent letters. They're told what the children can take with them. And, and they, but underlying all of this is this message that war is not going to happen. Because what people don't realize was that there was a genuine concern in the 1940s or if, uh, 30s before war, that if there was gonna be another one, the working classes and it's list, listed in the documents, the working classes would panic. And so what they attempted to do, the government, is to actually keep a lid on this by all the way through saying, well, this is only in place just in case. Now, we know that war happened. So what happened to our fictional child? Well, the last week of August, when they were in school, and the first week of September, uh, because school terms did start slightly earlier then, uh, that child would go to school with his or her suitcase, or if they couldn't afford a suitcase, they would take a pillowcase with all their goods in. And they would go to school, and they, a lot of the people have said they always remember teachers with a clipboard. And they would march out of the school and they would go to the nearest bus stop and then turn around and come back. If they were close uh, to the what they would call the entraining stations, then they would go to the station, go onto the platform and go back to school. Now, that happened on the Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday and Thursday. For some children on the Friday, when they got to the bus stop or got to the train station, they actually got on the bus or the train. There's no preamble. They've gone to school 
as normal and all they were expecting was to go through the usual routine oh we're going to trot down the road turn around and come back again now they're on the train some of these children had never been on a train and the other thing was that you get these romantic um notions that all the all the parents were standing on the platform and outside the school waving the children off well that's just not true um the only pictures that you see of parents walking down the street um is where a rumor had gone around that the kids are going and you'll see a lot of policemen there not to control the children marching up the road but to keep the parents back the only country in Europe that allowed their child their parents to see the children off was in fact Germany huh. when they had the Kinderland Verschucken and they were allowed on the platform to see their children off right so you now got this child on the platform with his on the train with his teachers so can i just pause just to reflect on that um because i think each step each step along the way um it's it's a it, it it's traumatic because you're thinking as i'm picturing myself as this child i'm just trotting off to school um and suddenly bang i'm taken away from mummy and daddy without actually expecting it um uh, mummy and daddy's not necessarily there or if they are there um they're being held back uh by police it's kind of like i'm some sort of criminal um and i'm on this machine that i'd seen you know chugga chugga pass but i'm on it and it's going at speed and it's scary um and i'm being taken away from my fam not just my family but my community my what's all familiar um and this is just the beginning and i'm reflecting on this because i'm thinking how the pandemic in the last year lockdown has affected children it's all been in the news um and these children are modern children now um they haven't been able to go to school they've been locked down with their own families at home which is a place that is familiar and yet there are reports of um you know mental health difficulties because of the isolation being away from their peer group the disruption to their rhythm of their life um and i just wanted to um kind of draw that you know sort of bring that highlight that out because actually um it's you know that that is traumatic for modern children but how hugely more traumatic for uh these children during um the second world war in in the uk in the western world and i want to also connect that with um the work of beyond conflict which is of course um that's happening to to children and people uh Uh, in in these uh, conflict zones like Syria, Bangladesh, um they have these communities where uh, they're in a small town or a village and they've got their uncles and aunties, their friends, their community and suddenly something traumatic happens um and they lose their homes that they're being evacuated they're now in these evacuation camps uh, uh refugee camps and and so on. And and I think it's important to kind of reflect on the fact that this ha- happened before it's happening again uh, just in a different part of the world um you, you sort of people are people wherever they are um and the story that you're telling um uh, is for me sort of makes it much more sort of vivid the the what's happening to people now um in yes. uh, who are being supported by beyond conflict and and i think i think the the, the there was another problem in that the government were if you like warned that there might be problems and you're absolutely right each stage of the process was a separate traumatic experience which then uh, culminated in for some children a really really difficult time so um i'd love to pick up on the story um of of our fictitious child now they're on the train and and what yeah. happens next Well they they're on the train they get on the train they don't know where they're going some of these children were put into third class carriages uh which literally were boxes on wheels the only way out of the compartment was if you lifted up a leather belt put your arm outside turn the handle and the door opened they had no access to toilets when ever this train stopped to pick up evacuees along the line or 
drop them off. You had organizations like the Boy Scouts, the Girl Guides and other people giving these children drinks. So we've now got the added problem that a lot of these children were desperate for the toilet and they, they couldn't use them. So when, when a lot of them arrived in the reception areas, some of them had wet themselves. They had also been, many of them had also been sick because what they did carry with them, when they, when they got to the station, unless um, it was very well planned and the food was available at the other end, they were actually given a brown paper bag with a ration pack of food. That wasn't for them, it was for the, their hosts to tide them over for 24 hours. And that was uh, chocolate, biscuits, um, evaporated milk, um, a tin of spam, just basics. Now, a lot of these children ate them, ate, ate, ate their, all the stuff in but the bags course, on the way. Of course. Because they were kids. Yep, absolutely. It was an extremely hot day. So some of the children were wearing double clothing in order to uh, allow for more clothes when they got there because the clothing allowance was tight. So now when they arrive, they arrive on these platforms to, in some cases, to hear languages they've never heard. They arrive in North Wales and they're being spoken to in Welsh. They're, they're arriving in the West Country and you've got strong West Country dialects or in the North. You know, they're not necessarily speaking in a language where well, the language is the same, but they're not speaking in the same way as they used to at home. So that's that's the first thing. Going back to the journey, if you were over the age of seven, you could be given the responsibility of a sibling under five. Most of the children under five went with their mothers. But if the mothers couldn't go, then their older siblings looked after them. So that's another responsibility for a seven-year-old. So they now arrive at this obscure little station or a large station in the West Country. They're all taken off the train. And it worked in a different, various ways, depending on how the billeting officer wanted to do it. They had already had a, have a reg, had a register of who was prepared to take these children in. And some cases, they were literally put on buses or cars and taken round to the various houses to be handed over. Now, of course, once they were handed over, nobody knew what was going on inside that house. And again, before we go one. on to the next bit, sorry, I just again want to just pull out some of the um, things that that kind of res sort of just kind of um, uh, struck me really that these children had to have these extra responsibility looking after the younger one um, and on top of that they might have wet themselves they've eaten the rations that were meant for the host um, because they're kids they're extremely hot they're tired they're fractious no doubt and I'm assuming that the adults would have been, that they encountered would have been, you naughty child, you wet yourself. You naughty child, you ate the gift that was meant for your host. Um, you naughty child, you're crying, you've been sick. Um, and rather than receiving the the, the, the love and embrace of mummy um, in those kind of traumatic moments, they're left to fend for themselves as all these other kids in this hot space, um, treating being treated as if they're being punished. That's exactly right. And, and I, I have one example of when children arrived from London on one of these trains, they were so disheveled and, and wet and everything else that the authorities actually put them in the cattle pens <gasps> downwind. And some of the coach drivers that came to pick them up or the cars refused to take them. And so what you, you then got are these hosts coming in, uh, taking their children in this state. So that didn't go down too well. But those that weren't taken around the villages and the houses, um, they remained either in a school hall or a village hall or um, a library, anywhere where there was a, a meeting place. And it was literally a cattle market. That's why 
the title of my first book and my subsequent book, I've written loads on this, but my, the first book I wrote, I called it, I'll Take That One, because it was the phrase that I heard so many times from ex-evacuees when I said, what do you remember most about that meeting? And they said, oh, well, these people would come up and down the road, point and say, I'll take that one. Wow. And they would go off. Now, that choice was not, was supposed to be a free choice. But if they were in a farming community, the boys were op often taken first. Some uh, girls who were quite pretty were taken by, if you like, middle-class families um, almost as an accessory. You know, this is our nice evacuee type of thing. And one of the big fears, and this highlights the trauma you were talking about, one of the biggest fears and one of the most recurring memories that I've heard, and it can't, it can't all be true, was that everybody said, I was the last one to be chosen. And of course they weren't. But in their mind, as people were going up and down the row, they didn't think they would be chosen. It's like, you know, standing, being chosen for a netball team or a hockey team. You don't think you're going to get picked. And that's so these so... kids have gone through all of this. And in some cases, their journeys have taken 12 hours. And they've still not necessarily arrived in the house. Once they get into the house, then the, the responsibility of the authorities uh, no longer applies. It's up to the host and the school teachers. Now, to add to the problem of this romantic notion, I remember interviewing some teachers who were getting on a bit by the time I interviewed them because I knew that they had to write a report on how they were welcomed. So I said to them, when, when did you have time to write the reports? And without exception, they said, oh, we wrote it on the train. Uh, but how can you do that? You haven't arrived yet. And they said, oh yes, we know that, but we knew there was a, a political game going on here. Oof, and we gosh. couldn't criticize the scheme. And so we wrote positive things because that's what the government, the authorities and the media wanted to hear. And that's why even now, even today, uh, we get the, this romantic notion of what evacuation was like. Uh, I mean, to the extent, it's really quite funny looking back on it, to the extent I was telling people this at a lecture I gave in Cambridge, and a guy came up on the stage and physically assaulted me because he said I was talking nonsense. I was talking rubbish. You know, um, the British wouldn't do a thing like that was a th the other things I heard. Because it's quite hard to hear um, and um, it's quite disturbing. Um, so going on, uh, what was it like in the in the new place, the new houses, the, the, the new homes? It, it depended entirely on the hosts. Some hosts were absolutely brilliant. Um, I mean, I've heard of evacuees who were funded through a private education. Um, they had been well clothed. Uh, they were given music lessons. Uh, you know, they, they had a really, really good time despite the fact that they were separated from their parents. And of course, don't forget, in 19, we now know the war finished in 45. When these children were evacuated, they didn't know that. They could have been away for donkey's years and they would have been, you know, they, they could have been in these communities for a very long time. And some of them were very tolerant of the trauma that their kids were going through. Some Catholic children who went to very much Protestant areas like North Wales or Mid Wales, their hosts made sure that they could attend mass. Uh, so the little things and the little niceties uh, were there. Uh, unfortunately, a lot of them didn't have a good time. Um, they were ill-treated. Uh, there was 
I often get asked the question, how many evacuees were abused? But we have to be very careful with that question because people are asking me that on the basis, on the present day, uh, if you like, um, idea of abuse. You know, <clears throat> in the 1930s, 40s and 50s, when I was child, a child, if you stepped out of line, you would get a clip around the ear or a smack and it was growing up. That thankfully doesn't happen anymore, but it was common practice then. So some of the, the, the abuse um, as defined by today, the children um, didn't receive, but they were still smacked and uh, punished for what they were doing. We have very, there's very little evidence of um, evacuees being sexually abused, although there is enough evidence to show that it did go on. Um, I once uh, had issues with um, somebody who called um, evacuation a paedophile's dream. And I just said that to her, actually, you know, that's a very emotive statement. And you're only basing that on present day assumptions. Uh, it may have happened and it did happen. You've only got to go through some of the court records to find out what was going on. And interestingly enough, most of that type of, abu of abuse was being carried out by women, not men. Because of course, the men, many of the men were missing. They'd gone off to fight uh, in, in the forces. So those that were left were in reserved occupation or really quite elderly. Um, so that was something else that the children had to had to live with. Um, it, this is very, very disturbing and upsetting to, to hear that this um, happened um, um, and uh, that there was also these um, fictionalised reports by the escorting teachers. Um, and, but all this that, that you're saying is based on rigorous academic research. Yes. I mean, I, I interviewed thousands and thousands of ex-evacuees. And of course, when I started to do my research, some of the denotices from the documents of the time were being lifted. So I had access to written evidence by now. And so what I used to do, if I went into a, an area uh, and I used various case studies, is I would start from the macro, in other words, the government, and then I would go to county level, and then I would look at a town level, district level, and in some cases I even went down to parish council records to see how they were assimilating a group of children into their parish, into the tiny villages. And basically some of the legislation was being cascaded down, but of course each individual area had to implement his own structures to suit their environment. So yeah, this uh, I did a lot of extensive research to the point that in the end, uh, one particular area, which I won't mention, refused to let me have, let me see the documents. I, I saw them for the first day, went back to the record office the following day, they'd found out what I was doing and they refused me access mm -hmm. uh, because so they were afraid of what I might find. So for the purposes of this podcast, I just want to emphasize that everything that you have said has, is, is backed up by research, um, interviews and people's personal statements uh, that you've yeah. recorded for from your 30 plus years of academic work uh, in this area. And all that material that I've collected over that, those years uh, is now in my archive at the University of Reading the Museum of English Rural Life and there's an archivist who works specifically with that collection and apart from documents where uh, families have asked them to be closed until the person who donated it is gone um, they're all open 
and they're open to any any researchers. And I insisted that when I set it up, that even a, a, an eight-year-old child coming in doing a school project can have access to that material. And I leave that entirely up to the archivist because some of the material uh, is very disturbing. And she would know what not to show an eight-year-old. Uh, but it, it covers the whole range of experiences, you know, the good, the bad and the ugly, really. So anyone who wants, who's heard these stories and wants to find out more, um, can can go to the archive at the University of Reading um, and request um, uh, to to look through them. Yeah, yeah. Okay, thank you for that. Um, I I think to I want to kind of uh, wrap up this particular section of the podcast and and move on. But just I think for me, what has come out is. Um, um, uh, in addition to to my reflections just now, this idea to tie it with the work of Beyond Conflict, um, looking at um, uh, people who are affected by conflict now, uh, who are being supported by Beyond Conflict, and refugees um, and the, the people that we see on the news, it's very easy to see these pictures of these dishevelled, um, hungry, tired uh, people, and say, "Ugh, you know, they can't look after themselves. They're just, you know, what are they doing in in our country? What? Is the, why can't they go and sort themselves out? Why should we be responsible for them? Why should we take care of them?" But actually, if we step back and just reflect on these children who stepped off those trains, um, British children from London, um, within, uh, you know. A lifetime's memory, um, they were th thought of uh, disheveled children, naughty children, all that. Um, and these people um, who had to evacuate because their homes were destroyed um, are people just like us, um, but from a different country, from a different uh, culture. But they had homes, they they had jobs, they were professionals, they were um, uh, you know cleaners, whatever. They were just ordinary people like us. But because of what happened to them, they've um, they've ended up in this disheveled state, staying in camps, um, makeshift uh, camps, temporary camps that are unfortunately increasingly becoming more permanent over the years. Um, and it's very difficult to maintain their human dignity in those circumstances. And so it's a good reminder for us just to take stock and go, okay, let's not bring in our automatic judgment based on what they look like and how they seem, but let's reflect on their past and their histories and their lives that were turned completely upside down by conflict. And so the work of Beyond Conflict supporting um, their, men, uh, you know, there are people who are supporting their physical needs. There are organizations doing that, but Beyond Conflict is supporting the psychological needs yes. um, coming out of, of, of that trauma. Yes, and what what uh, um, I can do for my research and people who'd work who've worked with me on my research can empathise with what's going through the mind of those children. Uh, but to some extent, what you say is, in in a way, even worse today, because at least when the the children were evacuated, and it doesn't matter whether it was Finland or Germany or Britain, they had a name. And when they arrived at their billets, they had a name. They were introduced as Graham or June or whatever. But unfortunately, one of the big problems facing these children and others today is they become a number. Gosh. You know, they're, they're a number on a list or, or their names are only known by very few people. So they go onto a register in a camp or... Uh, they they go onto a register of the of the boat people when they originally come when they come into this country, um, and often their names are not used. That is and completely so depersonalised, dehumanising, and um, I mean I'm I'm it's it's quite unnerving and unsettling and, and distressing to think because of course what these images of cattle trucks, um, no windows, um, people with clipboards, selection. Um, numbers um, for the Jewish people who experienced the Holocaust, um, numbers tattooed on their arms, and this is happening now uh, for yeah. for these people being given a number. Um, it's it's quite quite um, 
unsettling. Um, so I also want to uh, just um, emphasize that for Beyond Conflict, your work is specifically uh, with, was, uh, has been with children, and that's where your, your stories come from. Um, but just to remind our listeners that, of course, Beyond Conflict helps children and adults uh, as yeah. well. Um, now, you have personal experience of mental health issues. Um, could you talk about that? Well, um it's, it was very difficult. I mean, I've worked in, with these children for, as I said, a long time. And I had made every effort um, to be an objective researcher and stand back from these things. And But I heard some, some amazing stories. And I've read some incredible letters and documents and seen photographs and film and all sorts of things relating to the children of that time. Um, and because when I could, I would interview a lot of these people face to face. So a lot of the children here face to face, certainly a lot of the children in Finland, uh, I interviewed face to face. I say children, but they're now in their you know, 70s and 80s. But uh, I interviewed face to face. And I've been in situations where the person I'm interviewing has broken down emotionally. They've shouted and screamed because all of a sudden they, they just returned to a moment. And I had, I had dealt with this, I thought, because within all these interviews, I had to be... Uh, the, the rock, if you like. I had to be the person. I, I never stopped anybody if they were crying. And, and I never got emotionally involved with their crying. I just let them do it because it was part of the process. It was cathartic for them, uh, either when I was filming them or when I was just recording them. But what I hadn't realised was over time, that had taken a toll on my own mental health, because I was taking on the anxieties of the people I was working with. And it was only my daughter, my eldest daughter, who one day said, you know, Dad, you, you're giving all this help to everybody else, uh, but you actually need to find some help for yourself. And to some extent, that's now become my mantra. When I'm dealing with anybody or working with anybody who's working with these children, I actually say, who is caring for the carer? Because we put so much emphasis, as I did, on caring for the person in front of you, that you forget what you, you're going through yourself. And in some cases where, that, where that's once removed, you're forgetting what the person uh, is going through if you've allocated them that role. And that's, particular, that's a particular problem with teachers who've been given the responsibility of looking after boat children coming into present day schools. So I reluctantly went along to see the doctors because I very rarely go to the doctors. And when she said, and what do you do for you know, a living? And I told her, she literally thrust her hands out and said, and you wonder why? And it wasn't until you step back um, that you realize what you or oneself has gone through uh, and what one has experienced, okay, secondhand, mostly, but sometimes firsthand by seeing the effect that these experiences had, how they'd affected the. The, the person I'm interviewing. So it, it affected you personally, and you, uh, it was, you know, it, it affected your relationship um, with your family to the extent that your daughter said, you know, Dad, you need help. Yes. And I did. And but, uh, primarily, I didn't take any medication. I was going to fight my way through it. But I'm lucky because I have a very supportive family. My wife knows what's going on. Um, I have three close friends who will just pick up a phone and just 
I can talk to them and just say, talk about nothing. Or they will ring me and just say, how are things? And, and I also have my glass. I, I work as a glass artist and that, that is my safety valve. So I have my own studio here and sometimes I can actually go into the studio and immerse myself in something so that I don't have to think about anything else. But um, I have to be honest, it never goes away. You know, there were situations that I see on television and <clears throat> how children are being dealt with now and I get quite angry by it. Um, but because you know, I'm sitting there thinking, well, why aren't you doing something? You know, look at what you're doing. Why are you treating these people this way? You can't make that glib statement. You know, you can't just put them in a house with no support, that type of thing. And, and I do get really quite annoyed and angry. And my wife tells me to calm down. It's not my problem. <laughs> but, you, but because it always had been. Yep, so I had one I had one really good experience, which was for me quite cathartic, because I was asked to meet Nicky Winton, Sir Nicholas Winton, who was he's often called the British Schindler. He got all these children out of Czechoslovakia. And I was asked to go over and have coffee with him. And coffee turned to lunch. And I spent most of the day with him. But the thing that was most cathartic was that, first of all, he said he wanted to see me because the work I was doing was very much akin to the work that he'd done. Which, of course, I said, no, you rubbish. You know, totally different circumstances. My work is nowhere near uh, yours. And then... I then asked him the question, out of everything you've done, what's the most, uh, th what's the thing that you remember most? And he said, standing on a platform at a station in Prague, 200 odd children on the train, ready to go. The borders came down September the 1st. All the children were taken off the train and he never saw them again. And he sat there and cried. And I cried with him because what he was saying just brought about to me uh, a, a lot of the experiences that I shared <clears throat> with some of the children I worked with. And you see, it doesn't go away. Um, I, I, still, I still get affected by it. But to hear it from him, and to realize that he'd gone through the same or was going through the same uh, actually was was a quite a, a good experience for me as someone in the public so eye as i bury myself in other things so you have your own way of coping Sorry. um no no don't apologize please um uh, and you have a supportive family and friends um and you have your glass and you're, you're managing your uh, depression, sadness, anger, uh, mental health as, uh, issues. But as an expert, uh, a public figure, um, we have an expectation of those people in our lives, the, our public figures and people like yourself and Sir Nicholas Winton, uh, that you know, you're, you're strong, you know what you're doing, you're in charge, you're the figure of authority. Um, it is brave to um, show your fragility, your human fragility, your vulnerability, um, and to talk in public like this on this podcast uh, about uh, your own mental health um, struggles. Um, why do you feel it is important to talk openly in this way? Well, I think it's important for the really the reason you just alluded to, that you could be the strongest, seemingly the strongest figure you know, I know what I'm talking about. It doesn't phase me if I walk into a lecture theatre and there are 5,000 people. That really, really doesn't bother me. So people see me in that role. So if you like, they, don't, they see the swan on the water. They don't see what's happening underneath. 
And the fact that in order to be able to speak to that audience in an authoritative way, knowing what I'm talking about, I've had to go on through a lot of emotional um, trauma to get there. I've had to go through the ringer to get there. You know, I've had to make excuses to walk out of interviews. Uh, you know, when I said to people, um, I'm really sorry, can you, could, could you just hang on to something? I need to check something with my secretary. And I walk out of the door, take a deep breath and walk back in, but I'm still smiling. I've got to be smiling because that's how you, they relate to you. I, I could never um, say to the people I'm interviewing or demonstrate to them that I'm feeling the same anxiety because that wouldn't work. So I always have to be seen to be strong. The reason I'm now upfront and honest about it is because in a way, I don't want the people who are my students, my PhD students who were getting involved in this um, to go through the same thing. So I used to say to people when they wanted to do a PhD or they wanted to get involved, I would say, that's absolutely fine, but there is a, there is a health warning. You need to realize that with all the best win in the world, you're going to get caught up in this. And you'll have, you're going to have to have something uh, to deal with. You're going to have to have a safety valve. You're going to have to something that you can resort to to take you away from it. Um, but it's there. And then I say, I'm more than happy to work with you. Um, and if a couple of years down the line, you come to me and say, I'm really sorry, but I can't do this anymore. I, I say I would have every respect for that decision. So don't ever worry about admitting that you can't carry on uh, be, because that's part of the learning process on your part. And um, I have to say that's only happened once. So it means that anybody I've worked with comes into it with not only an open mind because I don't want them to repeat the work I've done. I always say, look, like, take what I've done and take it forward. And if you disagree with me, that's fine. You know, that's part of academic research. So don't worry about that. But also uh, don't worry about um, facing your demons uh, because whether you believe it or not, I usually say to them, whether you believe it or not, I'm still facing mine. And they, they smile and almost say, oh, come on. <laughs> you know, you've been doing this for so long. Well, yes, but it's because I've done it for so long and I hid it for so long. And actually, you um, know, for the reasons that I mentioned, for for your your work and and the people the, the people who come after you, the 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 new generation of researchers, and that is um, that helps them take care of their own mental health by being very honest and open now. Um, uh, as a figure, uh, uh, as a mentor to them, and as a, a, a figure that they might, a role model that they might aspire to, um, showing your um, struggle with mental health gives them permission to ask for help, um, to actually, as you said, step back and say, well, actually, this is not for me. Um, and that's okay, because we're all human. And taking it to a broader uh, view, I think, if we look out um, all over the you know, our workplaces, um, not just academic researchers into this specific subject, um, but people who work in banks and, um, you know, clerical workers, um, all kinds of different people um, may be struggling with, with their own mental health issues, um, not necessarily through the, the, the big trauma of conflict or war or displacement, but for whatever reason that is happening for them in their lives. And that is equally valid um, to experience sadness, depression, um, pain, emotional and psychological pain. And it's important, I feel, through the example that that you um, have shown and also other people uh, who are involved with Beyond Conflict to talk openly about mental health struggles because it's saying, well, actually, it's okay. And it, by admitting it, you can seek help or get support. Um, and it's, 
it's much better. It's in in a way, it's a sign of strength to show a perceived I think it is. weakness. I think people need to recognize it. They and you're absolutely right. They shouldn't see it as a weakness. They should see it as uh, having the strength to confront it. And how you confront it is up to the individual. You know, there's there's there's, uh, there's no magic wand that will make it go away. Um, and people have different ways of dealing with it. But the fact that you can deal with it, and you've made that decision to deal with it, uh, you're you're more than halfway there, because you can then seek help. Interestingly enough, I probably wouldn't have admitted I had problems if my parents were alive. Because I think it's very much a generational thing. You know, I was brought up uh, at a time when you didn't show emotion, certainly not as a boy or a man, you didn't show emotion. Um, and thankfully, that's not the case. You know, you're, you're allowed to cry, you're allowed to. And as you noticed, I occasionally find it quite difficult to talk about what I'm doing. But that doesn't bother me anymore. It would have done a few years ago, and it may bother people that I'm talking to. But whereas sometimes I would apologize profusely for getting emotional, I might say, sorry about that, and, that, and leave it. I don't really make a big thing of it now because it's just a part of my coping. Yes, and in fact, um, actually, the more people who can just have a shed a tear when they need to, that's very healthy. It's a great release. Yes. And I think one of the thing, one of the problems that we may find working uh, with the adults in the camps with Beyond Conflict is that culturally um, that may not be an emotion that they can demonstrate. And so they will internalize a lot of what they're dealing with, and that's not good for them. So um, we, this has been a really fascinating, um, moving and sometimes disturbing um, conversation. Um, so I just want to wrap up now. Um, why is the work of Beyond Conflict important? I think it's extremely important on the simplistic uh, end, just saying it's needed, it's required, it serves a need. But I think it... it it's required at various levels. It's required to provide support for the individuals caught up in this. So the actual refugees, whatever we want to call them, displaced people um, and what they've gone through. So they, they can see that there is somebody who is willing to listen to them and offer them support. It's also uh, needed by those people, the carers, who are offering the support in the field because we can't be in the field but we can um, provide support from a distance because around the table at the um, young conflict board there's a great deal of expertise in various fields and if you bring all that expertise together you know we're offering a pretty good package we can disseminate and i think that's that's really quite important as well and i think we need to make the public aware uh around the world not here just here but we need to make the public aware that this is going on you know like you said earlier we we, we shouldn't look at the stereotypes we shouldn't label people just because they look dirty and disheveled or they come from a different country, speak a different language. Um, you know, they are all human beings with their own concerns, with their own needs. And I think what we've done or we are doing it beyond conflict is we're recognizing that. We're trying wherever possible to treat these people as individuals. You know, in all cases, that's not possible. But one of the things I always say if, I, if I'm lecturing on this is one of the big things you need to try and do at the very, very beginning is identify the individuals as individuals and don't label them with these generic titles 
that is very, very easy to do. If you're working with a group of people, uh, learn their names. Because once you've done that, you've broken down a big barrier. And from the, from the other side point of view, they now feel they're valued and they're recognized as a person. Uh, and that's certainly one of the things that I emphasize if I'm working with schools who've got a lot of both children coming into, into the schools and they are trying to assimilate them. First thing you do, learn their names. And I think I would throw that in uh, my, my own experience and of, uh, just in terms of names. My name is Yang Mei Ui. It's not a British name. Uh, it can be difficult to remember and pronounce. Um, and people have said to me, well, can I call you, you know, Lily or something? Why don't you give yourself an, an English name? And actually, no, this is my name. And I'm articulate. And as a child, I was articulate. And I um, came to England in um, completely different circumstances. But imagine being that child from a displaced situation um they and maybe not have english as your first language um being given a name that's not yours or being asked can i call you something else they're not going to be able to stand up for themselves um and it's important for us um whatever the culture to learn someone's actual real given name i think that's absolutely right um and, and I, I just think it's supremely arrogant for someone to turn around to you and say, uh, Yang Mei, can I call you Lily? And, and I, could, I should imagine you were very well restrained, but underneath you're thinking, no, <laughs> no I am who I am. And that's exactly right. I mean, I, even, even when I talk to teachers and say, I'd love to call him this or this or this, but I can't pronounce his name. I'd say, well, try. Just try. Because even in the act of trying, they might turn around to you and say, look, I know my name is difficult to pronounce. If you like, call me, whatever. But I said, it's his or her decision, not yours. As soon as you start talking, giving them nicknames, you've taken away the individuality. So, yeah. Okay, that's a good practical um, note to finish on. Um, if our listeners want to find out more about you and your work, where should they go? Um, well, they can either got, contact me through Beyond Conflict. Um, my emails are there, but I'm more than happy for people to contact me and ask questions or advice or whatever. Brilliant. Martin Parsons, co-founder of Beyond Conflict. Thank you very much. Thank you. And now we hear from Edna Fernandez, our other co-founder of Beyond Conflict, with an update on the charity's work as at June 2021. Well, firstly, Yang Mei, thank you very much for that wonderful interview with Martin. Um, I guess one of the main bits of news is that Martin will be stepping down from the board of beyond conflict and he will be retiring. So happy retirement to Martin and he's moving on to new projects and we wish him the best of luck in that and thank him for all his work. Um, he'll still remain part of the charity's family. He'll become an ambassador, which is great. And um, we've also got a couple of new people who've joined us. We've got Dawn Chamaret, who's come on board as our head of communications and uh, she has vast experience across the media field, both print and online media. And she's also worked for some amazing mental health charities, including uh, Combat Stress and The Samaritan. So welcome Dawn. And we've got Patty McCarthy, who has come on board as our uh, fundraising advisor. And she again has extensive experience working in this field. Um, so, we're kind of losing some old faces and gaining some new, which is nice. Um, but uh, the big news is we'll be announcing the formal report into the results of our first project in Bangladesh in Cox's Bazaar. And I'm very excited about that because it will showcase the real progress we've made on the ground and it will demonstrate to people how their money has been spent and how we've helped people. And this is what it's all about. And we will hopefully also be setting out the roadmap 
for how we will be extending our project in Bangladesh in future. And uh, in terms of Iraq, well, it's watch this space. When we're allowed to travel there, we will be there. So thank you, Yang Mei. That's it for me. Our guest was Professor Martin Parsons, co-founder of Beyond Conflict. As Edna has mentioned, Martin will be retiring from his role as trustee at the end of the summer, but will remain as one of our ambassadors for the charity. All of us here at Beyond Conflict are grateful to him for all he has done in the early stages of the charity's formation, and we wish him well in his future endeavours. For photos and links to some of the things we talked about, as well as music credits, go to our show page at beyond-conflict.co.uk and click through to podcast. Beyond Conflict is the mental health charity for conflict zones. We offer free mental health support to frontline workers and civilians affected by war, terrorism and displacement. If you have been touched by the stories in this podcast and would like to support the work of Beyond Conflict, please go to beyond-conflict.co.uk. There, you can find out how to offer your time as a volunteer and also how to donate towards our continuing work with people affected by conflict. You can also connect with us on Twitter and Facebook, where we are at Beyond Conflict 1. That's the numeral 1, at Beyond Conflict 1. On Instagram, we are at Beyond Conflict Charity. And you can email us. The podcast email address is podcast at beyond-conflict.co.uk. From me, Yang Mei Ui, thanks for listening and keep well till next time.